I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to episode eight of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. This is part two of my conversation with Keith Harris, OBE, one of the trailblazers in the UK music industry. If you haven't checked out part one, you should definitely go back and listen. So after a very successful period in the US working with Stevie Wonder, Keith decided to return to the UK in the early 80s. But did he have a plan? Here's what he said when I asked him. To be honest, I didn't have a plan. I knew that I needed to make that break. Wanted to come back to the UK. I probably foolishly assumed <laughs> that I'd find it, I'd find it you know, fairly easy to find new work in the UK, having just returned from Stevie Wonder's management. But I didn't, I didn't really know because, it, to be honest, it, it felt slightly disrespectful to Stevie to be planning and talking to people about, about leaving. You know, so I decided just to come back and then make a plan. So I was back in the UK with no idea what I was going to do. And what did the UK music industry look like when you returned to when you left? Had there been any significant changes that you saw in terms of opportunity, inclusion at that point in 82? The licensed label division at EMI, which I had left, had shrunk to almost nothing. You know, it, it had been a really, really big, thriving company. I hadn't been keeping enough tabs on the UK industry to understand what had happened, but I knew that something had happened. And the industry had got into, into, I wouldn't say difficulties, but it seemed to have contracted. And I guess that's because, you know, punk did take the sale out of the whole uh, sort of prog rock environment, which I had left. And the disco thing had collapsed, partly because it had collapsed in America. The industry was kind of looking for something new. And when you left, you must have left as the insurgents of what was Brit funk and the first real wave of young British black musicians were, were, were making headway in, in the charts. So how did that look when you came back and, you know, in terms of their progression and their chance of opportunity and their look of success? Well, it's, it's the really kind of early stages of um, black British music coming through. One of the, the earliest kind of breakthroughs that, that I remember, but I just can't remember whether it's before I went to America or after, was I remember... Uh, the band Heatwave, and they st- they formed an interesting enough two American brothers formed the band, but the but the rest it was a kind of a British based you know European thing, and some of the musicians were British. I know Roy Carter's on keyboards and um, Derek Bramble, Derek Bramble, the yeah. Wilder brothers, Rod Temperton, yeah, yeah, and uh, Bilbo, and <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I remember them doing a show where they supported Tavares. In Victoria, right, and it was the first time I had ever seen a British or British-based band blow an American band off the stage. You know, I mean, they were amazing. You know, and at that point, I knew that something new was was happening. You arrive back in the UK. You've decided that you're not going to look around and do anything out of respect to Stevie. So, once you've reacclimatized to the UK, what does Keith Harris do next? I'd been back. Only probably about a month or so. And I'd been talking to the, the, my contacts, the people that I knew, and um, probably the first person I, I spoke to about you know, possible work was the tour promoter Barry Marshall from Martial Arts. I put the Commodores with him 
uh, an early stage. And then Stevie toured with him in, in uh, the 1980 tour, which was very successful. And I was just uh, chatting with Barry about you know, what I was going to do next. And he suggested that, you know, maybe I would like to come and work with them at uh, martial arts. And to be honest, I was reluctant because I was thinking, well, you know, I was, I was thinking of doing my own thing or or maybe getting involved back in the industry on, on a record company or something like that. He said to me, oh, what about this young guy, uh, Junior Giscom? You know, he he's, seems to be getting some attention in America. I've been, some people talk to me about getting involved in managing him. You know, would you be interested in coming in on that? So I said, okay, well, yeah, I went to, I went to meet Junior and we, we, we talked and, and um, I said to Barry, okay, let's, let's jointly do it. If you were approached first, let's, let's jointly do it. So we both took on the management of Junior. Uh, Mum used to say he'd been out in the UK it had, it had just been released and had been ignored. Obviously, I still had some connections in America, and we went back to America with it, with a, a remix version, and it became a number two R&B record in America. <clears throat> so I remember going doing Soul Train and all that kind of stuff, and it, it was a it was a big moment because I think it was the first time a British act had um, you know really started to happen over there. And there's another band called Central Line. Um, that I got involved. So I started managing Central Line as well. And they had some uh, success in America, the song called Walking to Sunshine. Um, and so, you know, I ended up really then embarking on management. And you built up a, a nice little roster. Can you ex- expand on the roster? Because, you know, those who know about Black British music should hear how you were very much instrumental in the success of so many young artists. Junior and, and Central Line were the, were the key two. I then had a, um, a manager called Paul Johnson. I managed um, a band called The Walkers. Fairly early stage, probably about six months in, Junior said to me that he was more comfortable if I just took it on, so I was no longer co-managing with, with Barry. Later on, you know, I ended up working with Omar and Lyndon uh, uh, David Hall and more UK sort of R&B-based artists. But that, that was kind of much later, you know, there was, a, there was the sort of battle of the 80s because there were all those bands around at the time, like sort of uh, Life of the World and Beggar and & Co and uh, Shack Attack and <clears throat> Level 42. And, you know, I mean, all these people were around and they were all making really good records and they were all struggling to get any kind of attention on British radio. And there was a, there was a battle to be fought. You know, so, you know, fortunately for me, I, because I'd been a radio on plug and so on and so forth, I was able to kind of go into battle, you know, be, be behind the scenes and you start to really kind of try to harass people into being fair. I, you know, I didn't want anything other than kind of fair treatment. And, and it just seemed like that there was almost a kind of a one at a time policy. So, you know, oh yeah, we'll let them have a hit. But, you know, after one hit, they, they kind of drop them. <laughs> yeah. Looking back on that time, do you think it really was a case of stemming the flow as opposed to allowing all the quality to come through, as you would see with with, with acts in other genres? There was a, an issue, and it was an issue right across society. And, and, you know, it's only recently that people have really started to get, get to grips with it. 
if you look at if you look to the the makeup of radio, right? Radio One had no black producers, right, or no minority producers of any kind, and usually only one black presenter, and they did the soul show. The people who were judging the music had absolutely no background and no knowledge in the musical area that they were judging. It seemed to me, certainly, that they were said, well, I suppose we, we ought to let one, one of these through at a time. But they always regarded it, as, as, as far as they were concerned, as inferior quality. All the, all the best stuff was coming from America. Um, and it's just lazy. So how did, you go, how did you go into battle for, you know, for fairness... And equality for, for, for young black British acts behind the scenes. I mean, how did, how did that play out? I particularly remember a letter that I wrote to the then controller of Radio 1. Um, it was a guy called Derek Chinnery. You know, pointing out that they were dealing, treating it unfairly, you know, the black British music unfairly. And I, he wrote, wrote me a letter back, which was remarkable, because it... it in one one sentence, he says, "You know, first of all, I'm, I'm quite surprised that you're taking this line, and uh, black British people will be familiar with this. You know, well, I mean, I'm surprised you, Keith, would be taking this line. I mean, you know, you know you're, you know, you're not like those other blacks. Out there. Yeah. I mean, didn't I, didn't actually say that? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the, unsaid. You know, you know, you know that implication. Yeah, yeah. And he's saying, you know, I mean, I, I can't see there's a real issue. I mean, after all." And this this is his actual phrase. There's a there's a fair sprinkling of black faces on top of the pops every week. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? There's a fair sprinkling of black faces on top of, the, you know. So I actually I actually did, um, you know, we had a, a, a robust exchange for instance, at you know, that point, and it was just a matter of making people aware that we weren't about to take this. We were actually. Now going to start to, if nothing changed behind the scenes, we're actually going to start to openly criticise and openly comment. And then, you know, it wasn't just me. me, I had allies, you know. uh, um, The British Black Music Association was formed by uh, Root Jackson and Byron Lifehook, who was Omar's dad. (laughs) Um, And... The BMA you know, also started to, to take up arms. And I remember we made a program called Soul Searching. Uh, I think it's still available actually on the internet. It's, this would be round about the beginning of the 90s. It's about why the program was about why there was a lack of black talent um, in the charts or why, why so few black artists were ha- building long term careers. And it was actually interesting because it provoked, and I remember that I think the Independent or one of the newspapers also picked up and did a big article about it, and it provoked a really furious response <laughs> in, inside the industry. So let's talk about that response because I've been really interested because it's a program that I'm sure I would have seen, but I don't remember. So what was the kind of feedback you were getting from people seeing the program? Yeah, both external observers and those you know very much inside our business. Uh, well, inside the business, a, a lot of people were very defensive. It was it, the reaction was, well, you know, that's not true. I mean, you know, nobody could accuse me of being a racist. You know, I've played this record. But I remember he's an A&R guy who, who'd been very successful 
uh, with a lot of black acts. I was actually doing a conference with him just after this had come out. So on the panel, you know, he was saying, well, you know, I don't know, you know, what, you, what you're talking about with this sort of thing. You don't know what you're talking about. Think of what I've done for black music in Britain, you know, with all, all the hit acts that I've had. And I remember saying to him, um, have you ever thought what black music's done for you? He actually, and I'm going to use this word advisedly, he offered to fight me afterwards outside. <laughs> and I, he was I, that I, upset? Yeah, and, and I, I said to him, I said to him, there's only going to be one winner here. It's not going to be, it's not going to be you. <laughs> this is a side to Keith Harris that I've never seen before, but I, but, but I really like. <laughs> well, the point, I'm not, the point is, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't advocating the violence. No. <laughs> but but I am a fourth dan black belt in Taekwondo. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I, was saying that with, I was saying that with some confidence. <laughs> Keith, you've always been at the vanguard for diversity, inclusion, equality in, in our music business. I mean, the stories you've told now and the fact that you were the chair of the, of the Equality and Diversity Task Force. Tell us about that and how that came about the changes you made then and what you see as the difference between that time and now in terms of what we're trying to achieve and what has been achieved. Arising out of that programme we made in, in about 1990, 1991, because I was talking really much more about what was going on behind the camera rather than in front of the camera. So the, the, the music business side of it, as opposed to the artist side of it, because I believe, and I still believe this, that when we get more... Um, black executives or minority executives in the industry, that that's when we begin to see a more systemic change. You know, the artists and the talent is there is often held up by the fact that they can't see people like them and are not being nurtured by people like them, and that and that's one of the what's one of the the problems. So. In that program, several of the, of the executives, particularly the white executives, are saying, well, you know, we would have more people if we could find the talent out there. You know, I mean, Radio 1, for instance, we'd, we'd employ much more black DJs if only there were people, you know, with the ability. I'm thinking, well, what is the ability that you need uh, to be a DJ? <laughs> you know? I mean, you need to be able to talk. Yeah, I know plenty yeah. of black people who can talk. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and then I started thinking, well, also, it, people were kind of hiding behind this we need qualified people thing. Unfortunately for me, um, I had been invited about six months before to get involved in trying to uh, be what's known as the professional advisory body for. Uh, this honours degree in commercial music is going to be the first of its type in Britain, right? And then uh, after it had been running for a year, they asked me whether I'd be interested in teaching on the music business module. And I suddenly thought, actually, hang on a minute, this is, they're talking about people getting qualified. At that point, there weren't qualifications. But with this degree all of a sudden there would be qualifications and it would remove one of the the kind of barriers, supposed barriers that were to entry. So I ended up um, teaching the music business module 
of the Honours Degree in Commercial Music at the University of Westminster. And I actually ended up writing large parts of the module, because it, it wasn't fully formed, it had only been going for a year. So I ended up writing a lot of the music business models. So I, I ended up teaching on this degree course, you know, in the music business. And what was great about that degree course was that the staff, over half the staff, were black or ethnic minority, you know? And, and so it, it was really uh, almost subversive way of, of getting involved in, in changing the landscape because all these students are coming through and they were being taught by ethnic minorities and the significant number of women teaching on the course as well. So it made them see the industry in a different light, even heading into it. And, and because it was one of the first degree courses of its type, you know, we had some big initial success. And, and one of the things that, that we were able to do at that time was bring people in from the industry to meet the students, right? So all of a sudden, they're actually starting to see your know, articulate people, you know, make a very good case, well-informed about the business, you know, because one of the things we had this little group, we had this thing called the, the Music Business Group. And we'd bring people, and there's only about 10 or 15 of the students would be invited to this. And the, one of the conditions for entry was that when we had a speaker in, they had to go and research that speaker, find out you know, the company they work for, find out a bit about them, come with a question, a you know, prepared question. right? So these people would come in and find these students really well-informed, asking them you know, high-level questions. You know? And so it was, a, it was a really good path in the industry, but also a way of changing the opinion of some of the people already in the business you know, about some of the ethnic minorities they met. So, I mean, I, I taught on that for 16 years at Westminster. And we had, you know, we had some good successes you know, and, and some of the actually really now very senior people in the industry were at the University of Westminster. You know, and it always makes me smile, of course, because, you know, they're much more senior than me. <laughs> and I taught them. <laughs> yeah, I've, I mean, I've had the pleasure of actually talking to the students down there on a number of occasions. And clearly that's a carry on from what you started. The next thing I think that was probably significant was that I ended up chairing something called the Music Managers Forum, the MMF. But I think as the, as the, certainly the first minority head of a trade association, you know, and again, it's, it's all about painting pictures, if you like, letting people see that it, it is actually possible. You know, if you sort of try to maintain some kind of integrity, you know, and approach things in a, in a, a rational fashion, that it's possible to, to make these things happen. So when I was chairman of, of the MMF, like I say, it was just, it was a message to other, other young black people coming through that it is possible to have somebody heading up a music industry association who looks a bit like you. I mean, by, then, by that point, let's face it, I wasn't looking a bit like them because I was looking old and hammered. But, but, but you, you, never, you know, never. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, talking about it like this makes it sound like you know I had this plan and this roadmap, and it was never quite like that. I did have a plan 
And I remember talking to Stevie about this because he was saying to me, hey, man, what are you doing? <laughs> why don't we only come back? And I said, look, look, ideally, I want to have a black music infrastructure in the UK, right? That, to me, you know, if I have something as, as a legacy, yeah, that, to me, would be it. You know, in America, you've already done all that. You know, in the UK, we need to develop something. I'm seeing too many talented artists not getting anywhere because their careers are completely stifled. And so all of these things in the back of my mind, I think, well, okay, yeah, this is a good, this is a good stepping stone. You know, um, so that chairmanship of the MMF was an important marker, you know, just because... You know, I was then head of one of the trade bodies at the top table with the other trade body heads, you know, and um, people could actually see it. It was, it was very visible. You know, I was getting invited to, you know, the big industry dues because I was the head of a trade body. I mean, and it's interesting how, you know, over the years I've kind of seen the number of black people at those events going from being able to count them on one finger to being able to count them on the fingers of one hand. And now, you know, not only would I have to take my shoes and socks off, but remarkably, I don't, I don't even know everybody. You know, and that, that's really strange. Because for so many years, up until I'd say, up until six or seven years ago, any music industry event that I went to, where there were other black people, I knew them all personally. And of course, now I don't. And that's great. I mean, it sounds, sounds ridiculous, but you, don't, you have no idea how much I rejoice when I go to these things. You know? <laughs> and I don't know people. You know? And I can actually almost see, I mean, it might, might be just my paranoia, but I can almost see a lot of these new young black executives looking at me thinking, oh, who's this old guy that's kind of letting me <laughs> <laughs> well, we're about to change that. We're about to change, but I think that there are there are lots of us that have been through a similar journey, not as long as you, Keith. Generally, feel the same way. Clearly, things are moving in the right direction. But that's my next point. You've seen an, a, a lot of change. As I said, you've been the advocate of change. Where do you where do you think the business is now, in terms of that? Right now. I'm actually really optimistic. And, and one of the reasons is because social media and access to marketplaces, you know, other than the, the long-standing kind of more restricted channels, has really changed things. You can see with what's happened with Grime. Everybody just said, well, look, we'll do our thing. We'll just do our own thing. You know, and we'll, we'll find our route to market for ourselves. And it's much healthier. One thing we've always known, that once the money leads, the industry will follow. And so, you know, so much money has started to be made out of sort of black music areas that the industry had to say, hey, <laughs> welcome, guys, <laughs> you're carrying cash. That, uh, which is great. And we see that sense of independence and people being masters of their own destiny. What we don't have at the moment are people of colour 
sitting in the big chair, actually running major labels. We have some wonderful guys, very talented execs with their own label imprints, but none of them are running the major labels. Sadly, we lost Darkus recently, who's left Ireland to do whatever he's about to, to, to do. What happens there, Keith? Do you optimistic that someone is going to come through and actually you know, get off, get the opportunity to run one of those major labels again at some point? Because you know, in the years that we've been doing it, you know, I can only think of one. Yeah, it's awkward. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, one. Uh, you know, I do believe, as I said, that where uh, money leads, you know, people will follow, and I think that having now reached a, a kind of a, almost a critical mass in terms of the number of, of uh, minorities involved in the industry. It is only a matter of a relatively short time before one of those people has massive success. You know, and that massive success, people were saying, well, <laughs> yeah, come on. I mean, interestingly enough, a man died called Bashka Menon, right? It probably, it probably escaped your attention. Bashka Menon, when I started at EMI, he was something like uh, international vice president of EMI Records. South Asian. So it has happened before. Just that people obviously just don't remember. I mean, uh, and obviously people like Ahmed Ertegun. These, these guys have, have in America, obviously. I mean, Bashka Menon was, was in the UK. But these guys have proved that they have the ability to run major labels and create major labels. And history does have a habit of repeating itself. Yeah. I am quite optimistic because the door has now been opened. There's a thin end of the wedge. And I've seen a lot of the, of the people who have now been given the opportunity. And I know that they have the talent and the ability to go and create something really substantial. So in all honesty, I'm quite optimistic. And, and also, and, and you will be aware of this, uh, Adrian, we also, both of us, have a generation down, talented sons who are in the business, who also have some historical knowledge and background. And they are the kind of people who are going to make a difference because uh, they have not just their own little successful careers, but they have some historical depth to it. They have some understanding of what needs to be done. And they are actually looking out for other minorities and looking out for other people they can promote and accelerate and bring through. Right? And that's what's going to make a, a dramatic change. I mean, looking back, I mean, I think you talk about our, our sons. I mean, they are, I mean, obviously they have a historical context. They, they are regaled with the stories of two old men and what it, what it, was, what it was like to be working back in the business many years ago. I'm curious for them as to what they see as success for the next generation and what that looks like. But what does that success and that real diversity look like to you in the years ahead within the music industry? I want to see some minorities, you know, black, Asian. You notice I don't say women because people talk about women as minorities. Women are not a minority. (laughs) They're 50% of the population. So I don't include... But I, I want to see proper diversity, right, um, in the industry. And as you say, it shouldn't be remarkable for there to be a woman chairman of a major label or a black person running a major label. That should not be 
even remarked on. That should be the new normality. And, and that's kind of what I really want to see. It just should, it should just be normal. It's going to be a little while before we get there. But I think it will happen. I think the dam has burst, right? And you can't put the water back. To me, I think that it's, it's just a matter of time before, before it begins to happen. And hopefully it will, it will happen right across society. But the music industry really should always have been a leader. And it, it's been slow to lead. So let's, let's just hope that we can kind of catch up and start to, to get ahead of the game. So let's fast forward a minute and, and ask what Keith Harris is doing now. Because the one thing I know about you, Keith, is that, you know, you are perpetual motion. You know, you don't stop. So I'm kind of following my nose, you know, which is kind of what I've always done. With being in the business for so long, you're connected to so many people. And, you know, people talk to me about stuff. And, and the things that I find interesting are the things I get involved in. So, you know, these days I'm, I'm sitting on the board of several charities, you know, as a, as a, as a trustee. I'm earning, you know, my little bit of corn, <laughs> doing, doing sort of education and training mainly. Uh, and I'm, I'm involved in, a, in a, a couple of business projects. I mean, one quite interesting uh, new, new venture, uh, which is, you know, about royalty collection you know, from, from around the world. But, you know, I mean, to be honest, I'm trying not to work too hard. <laughs> Are you still involved with Stevie? Yeah, with yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's going to be a lifetime thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we. I don't, I get involved in his business a, a little bit these days, but we still talk very regularly. You know, every few weeks we have a, have a call. Yeah, I mean, that, that's something that, that it, there's too much history and and we know each other too well for that to, to come to an end. Let's go back to 2015 for a minute because this, I mean, it's an important moment in your life and it's something that you know we were all very proud of, even though we weren't having the medal pinned, you know, the honour pinned on us, but it felt like we were when you were awarded your OBE. I mean, describe the emotions of being awarded that for services to the music industry and also your charitable works as well. I'll tell you what happened actually because it was actually quite funny. I got a letter. Right, which I, I suppose this is what happens to everybody. I got this letter in the post, just pretty innocuous letter, and and it came through and it said, "The prime minister uh, is something along the lines of the prime minister is minded to recommend you for a, a, an award in the honours system, but before that happens, we'd like to know that if you are recommended, will you accept it?" I'm going. Well, of course I'll accept it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not important enough to turn it down. It, there was just never a question to me. Anyway, but, but I said to my wife at the time, I said, listen, I've got this letter. I think somebody's winding me up. So I'm going to send the letter back, but let's not talk about it anymore because I think it's a wind-up. And uh, so we sent it off, and it said something in the letter about you know, if this goes through, it'll be um, in the Queen's birthday honours right, on the 12th of June. I remember the date. And um, I said, well, listen, I'm going to send it back anyway, but let's just not talk about it because I just, I think something's taking it. So anyway, 12th of June came and on the day I was actually doing a seminar in Glasgow for young people trying to get in the music business. So I got up really early. I took a 
6.30 flight up to Glasgow from Heathrow, taught at this thing all day, flew down, arrived back at Heathrow at about half past 10 at night, right? And of course, I'd heard nothing about this. So I said, well, phew, I'm glad I didn't tell anybody because it obviously was a winder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I, uh, <laughs> you know, and I got off the plane. And I, I still remember, and I was walking back to my car and my phone, my phone rang and it was my daughter. She said, oh, congratulations, Dad. And I said, on what? And she said, on your OBE. I said, what? How do you know? Because I hadn't talked to her about it, right? But I didn't know. She, my daughter is a civil servant. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm actually very proud of her. She is now a senior civil servant at the age of thirty-two, which is, which is pretty remarkable, right? I mean, we don't get into too many conversations because I'm, I'm worried that um, one of her thoughts will get into my head and split it open. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, she's very bright. Okay, <laughs> so she called me. She's saying, "Congratulations, Dad." Um, and I said, well, she said, how, how do you know about the, she said, oh, well, it's been announced. He said, it's, she said, it gets announced on half past 10 at night, the night before. Right. So, so, so it's basically, it's early enough to capture first editions of the morning papers. Yes. Yeah. But, but not early enough for anybody to break the embargo on the, I, I said, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, but how did you know to look? Yeah, because I mean, it's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good question. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, and it turned out that one of her colleagues was using something called the civil service fostering. So one of her colleagues in, in the in the home office had contacted her bef- at some time before and said, "Is this your dad?" And she said, "Yeah, it is." So she knew all along, right? But I didn't know. I didn't. I really didn't know about it. So you know, so that's how I found out. And and what made it even more confusing was that on the on the honour, it said, you know, Dr. Keith Harris. And so the next morning, I was actually on, on the train on the way into London. And I got a call from a guy from Music Week. And I think it was Mark Sutherland, the editor of Music Week. Said, um, we're just looking at the honours list. Um, and it's Dr. Keith Harris. Is this you? Yeah. I, I said, yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> and I said, oh. Because, of course, I was given an honorary doctorate by the University of Westminster in, in 2007. So, so, yeah, it actually is me. <laughs> yeah. so, so you can see that there was a, an element of surprise from everybody. Yeah. And, and for me, I think what was um, pleasing about it, although it, it came fractionally too late, was that my grandfather, who was a pharmacist in the Gambia, had got an OBE. Uh, and of course, m- my mother was so proud of the fact her dad got an OBE, and she unfortunately just died a few years earlier. But I knew that she'd have been absolutely <laughs> cock a hoop, you know. And so, you know, it, it, it's an honour. It belongs to a lot of people. I've had a lot of help on the way. There've been a lot of people like yourself and and, and many others who've been very supportive. Because it's you know sometimes it's a pretty lonely road because it's it's a lot easier to say nothing than to say something a lot of the time, you know. Um, and the other thing, the other point that I want to make is that quite often that there have been certain music industry executives who have just have been very you know black music executives who've been quite successful in the industry, 
And people often said, well, they don't say anything. You know, I haven't seen them, you know, raising their heads above the parapet. And I I mean, listen, they don't need to. Their work speaks for them. You know, because they have been so successful. We can't all be going around all the time making a fuss and, you know, what you you need some people in those positions who are highly successful, right, who just do the job really, really well. So that it just confirms that if you give, you know, minorities a chance, they can be as good as anybody else. Yeah, I mean, if I think about, you know, my friend Dej Mahoney, who was head of legal and business affairs at Sony for 12 years. People like that, all I want them to do is just be so good, which they are, <laughs> that people now, because Dave was there for 12 years, you know, never really got promoted. But he now has his own very successful company. And hopefully the industry realises what they're missing. Yeah, because that's happened so many times. One final question, Keith. You've had an incredible career, some wonderful experiences, been at the vanguard of a lot of change, and you've taken up the charge for people of colour along the way. With all that experience, if you were to give one piece of advice to those young executives of colour coming through now, what would it be? Well, it would be kind of a joint, two joint pieces of advice. First of all, you have to be really, really good at what you do, right? Because that underlines everything. And that means, you know, educate yourself, just you know, make sure that you are really on top of any job that you are given to do. Secondly, you've got to be persistent. You know, if you stay on the pitch long enough, you'll probably score a goal. So, you know, resilience, you know, you're going to get knocked back because everybody does. And that's not necessarily just, you know, a black thing, you know, uh, a, a female thing. You know, everybody gets knocked back. You've got to be resilient. Ultimately, if you do that and you've got the talent, you'll get through. So only leads me to say, and I'm going to give you your correct title now, Dr. Keith Harris, OBE. Firstly, thank you very, very much indeed from an awful lot of us for the road that you walked in front of us, for what you did for us, for the changes you effected and you still continue to effect. And secondly, thank you for joining us on Did You Know, the podcast. It's been an absolute revelation, but more importantly, it's been... A real honour and pleasure to, to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for sparing us the time. Thanks for inviting me. I've enjoyed myself. It's great to talk about myself. <laughs> no, and, uh, yeah, yeah, we, and we'll be, I'm sure there's, there's more and we'll be doing it again. Keith, bless you, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank Thanks you. a lot. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know Pioneers, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Keith for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and Vega Brothers for our theme music. Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW, and Evie, Ren and David, and all of the team at WX. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast details coming very soon did you know is available wherever you get your podcasts make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode and if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review
and make sure you look out for our next episode of Did You Know, where we talk to manager, marketeer and entrepreneur Matt Ross about his career in the music business. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.